Good evening, Tom. Good evening. How are you, Simon? I'm good, thank you. Another kind time, Inc. And tonight we've got my old colleague Ian Andrew on board. Uh, how are you, Ian? Doing well, thank you. Where are you speaking from? Are you out in the deepest Renfrewshire area tonight, Ian? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Just making sure you were at home. That was all. Yeah. A lot of problems with the sun, but that's. <laughs> <laughs> and it's good to have an ally, an old Strathclyde colleague on board to defend me, to help me, because he's been giving me a hell of a time from loading the borders, Ian. It's like shooting fish in a barrel, though, isn't it, Tom? <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I would, uh, Ian's here for a specific reason, because tonight I thought we would take a wee dive into some very deep waters. And I suppose, firstly, I've got to give us a disclaimer and say that I don't, as far as I know, none of us are, are any expertise or any qualifications, and most of what we know is intuitive and learned through hard experience over the years by ourselves and watching our colleagues, helping our colleagues. But I want to talk about trauma and other things that lead to PTSD and how the police have dealt with that historically or not, as the case may be, and maybe talk about how we could do better in that field. I suppose what prompts it is the fact that police deal with everything. Ian, I'll come to you first because I know you worked in Govan in Glasgow where I work, amongst other places, and as duty officers inspector at Govan, you had a whole shift to deal with. Can you explain to us what I'm talking about with these traumatic events and what a day-to-day policeman's role is out there? Well, folk don't realise is what a police officer can deal with over a shift. It's very seldom that they'll go through, I would say, even a week of shifts without death at some point, having to deal with some form of death. Now, we all like to think, yes, they're trained to deal with it. It's not always that easy. What they do is suppress it. And that is the main response all the time. They will deal with something and they will suppress it. I mean, from personal experience, I did that for many, many years until it caught up with me. As I say, death's one of the worst things, but I think a big part of it for a police officer as well is they get a radio call, it gives them a code, they attend. That code is so wide, they have no idea what they're going to be dealing with exactly when they get there. So even before they get to the scene, the tension's up, they're stressed, and uh, they walk in cold and have to deal with whatever they're, they're handed. And it's not an easy job. That's an interesting point, Ian, that when you get the blues and twos on, when you get the blue lights and the twin tones on, the stress levels automatically rise when you're driving at speed through traffic, going towards something that you don't know what it is. I remember it way back, this is a lifetime ago, of course, at Oxford Street in my very first few days in the job. An ACC came to speak to us and said, I think he summed up at the end of it and said, when everyone else is going that way, away from whatever's happened, you guys are going that way, straight towards whatever's happened. And uh, and to me, that was a wake-up call in that first few days to what was expected of you as a police officer. Tom, what's your take on this, on what an officer does on a day-to-day basis and the effect it has on him. I was just thinking as Ian was speaking there, I remember there was an old quote from the Times in about 1872 which talked about the police having to attend all these unusual circumstances, which none of us would wish to do. And I think Ian's right too, and I think what's inherently stressful is this business about the definition of policing is 99% of humdrum and 1% of furious, dangerous, very difficult activity. And it's switching from the one to the other. 
And of course, you don't know when it's going to happen. As you say, you can be out on a Sunday morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, and get a call, and immediately you're pitched into either death or violence or life-threatening things, just like that, with a flick of a switch. And I think that switch on and off issue is a very big one in terms of accumulated stress and anxiety. Ian, you alluded there to some personal experience. Can you tell us about that, if you don't mind? Yeah, it took me a while to get to the point where I can talk about it. It was of year 2000. I was off sick after a road accident, so I was injured and walking my dogs and a boy drowned in the river near my home, 12-year-old. Myself and another guy were in. The water was filthy, we couldn't find them, and we dived and dived, couldn't find them. And that was the beginning of my brush with PTSD. I found weeks later, suddenly I was getting flashbacks, not just to that, but to a lot of incidents, and having nightmares, and wouldn't deal with it. It took a sergeant that worked with me to have the bottle to actually say to me, are you okay, boss? because you're questioning your own decisions. At the time, the force were great, absolutely great. One of the big things for me, though, of course, at that time in Strathclyde was that occupational therapy was not in a police office. It was away from the police offices. It was in one of the universities. So you could go there and seek help without having to walk into a police office and, as you felt, everybody knowing what you were doing. But basically at that time, what they told me was that the counsellor I dealt with, she was exceptional. And she said, I wasn't dealing with that one incident. What I was dealing with was 20-odd years of incidents and dealing with traumatic incidents. And this was just the catalyst. I'd gone out. I was off duty. I didn't was didn't have the time to pull my figurative suit of armour on and say I was on duty. And it just was the chink in the armour. And I think it happens so often to people. Yeah, I think that's important that when you go on duty and you have time to put the uniform on. Tom, you alluded to a thing there about when you're on your own. I was on my own once and head. I was in the CID at the time and I was coming back from wherever and I heard a radio message and it was just a neighbour had chapped a door and was getting no answer and was looking for some assistance from the police. So I was 200 yards away or whatever and I took the call on the understanding that there was uniforms on the way and I went up and knew straight away as soon as you lift the letterbox you know what's awaiting inside the door from the smell. So I put the wee panel in in the door and went in. And sure enough, there was an old chap there. He must have been at least mid-70s, possibly early 80s. I don't really remember the details now. He had been sitting in his armchair watching telly, which was still on, and a cup of tea beside him that was stone cold. And he had died peacefully in his armchair watching the telly. So I made a few radio calls, etc., and and dealt with it just as you, you always would. And... For some reason, it haunted me. That's not a word that I use lightly here because it would wake me up in the middle of the night for the next few weeks. And if I say it was a few months, I'm not exaggerating. So much so that I went and saw Mr. McClay, who was a police surgeon at the time, Dr. McClay. And as Ian said, the first thing I said to him was, I want to speak to you off the record. Because nobody wanted that in the file. And that could have severely affected my future. I don't know whether it would have or not if that had been in my file. But he had a wee chat with me, but I think he was close to bringing a bottle of whiskey out of his desk. But I don't. he never had the tools to deal with anything like that. He basically said, go and get a good drink in you and, and forget all about it. That was about the height of the advice that I got. And that was the therapy in Strathclyde Police at that time. But like you, Ian, 
Obviously, an old man dying of natural causes in his chair was no drama, considering what we had dealt with over the years in road accidents and fires and drownings and caught deaths, murders, but that was maybe the straw that broke the camel's back. What do you think, Tom? Oh, I think that's right. I mean, it's funny you should say that. We should remember that the that the police surgeons of our early years were actually pathologists, first and foremost. So they were pretty, <laughs> pretty ill-matched to deal with the kind of things we were talking about. But I remember speaking to a, a clinical psychologist who once said that everybody has a capacity and you don't know what it is and you don't know when it will overflow, but everybody has a capacity. Some of us live our whole lives without it overflowing, but then again, it can sometimes trigger an overflow for what are seemingly minor incidents, and they mark you. I mean, I remember as a very young policeman, and I've, I've thought about it and analysed it a bit, a very young policeman, I went to a drowning of a very young girl in a pond in Edinburgh. I would be about 20. And of course, I was absolutely useless. You know, you're 20 years old and you're wearing a uniform and you've got to go and deal. And I can still see this and I can see the anguish of these parents and this, this terrible feeling of grief and guilt all combined. And I have never forgotten that. And <laughs> to this day, I get anxious when I see children near water. And a funny thing, some years ago, when my son and daughter-in-law came and said, you know, Fantastic news! They were they were going to have a baby, and we were going to be grandparents for the first time. It's absolutely wonderful news. Literally, the first thing I did was order up a JCB to fill in the pond in my garden. Now it was completely irrational, because they'd only announced their pregnancy. It was a tiny wee pond; it wasn't very deep. But that didn't matter. I could not rest until I had filled in that pond, because it had obviously marked me in such a way all those years ago, and I'm talking about this incident in the early 1970s, by the way, I don't know, a long time ago, but still, still I can see that. And I think it was to do with the fact I was on my own. I think it was to do with the fact I knew I did not have the tools or the experience to deal with it effectively. I felt hopeless, to be honest with you, and just the whole grief of the situation. And I think every police officer, who's done a fair service, will be able to remember an incident like that where they felt terribly, terribly exposed. And I mean, I think, Ian, the fact that you were off duty, the fact that you were on your own, the fact that you failed to, to help, to fail to rescue, I think all of these things have just tipped you over that vessel that, you, you know, is full and it just tips and spills over the side. And that's what it's all about. Ian, you mentioned PTSD there. Were you actually diagnosed? Was it diagnosed as PTSD? Because that's quite a specific diagnosis, isn't it? Yes, it was diagnosed as PTSD. What they do is they teach you to deal with it because it's not something that goes away. Folk will say to me, you know, does it still bother you? Yeah, I still have nightmares. N nothing like I had. Occasionally I'll waking up in the middle of the night with the sweats. As what it is. Tom was talking there about young cops and that. I can remember you coming to Camelton, Simon, and I was your senior cop. I had about three years service at the time. <laughs> I, I was by no means an expert, and yet I was expected to take you and show you things. And I can remember taking your other young cops, not necessarily you, in Campbelltown, to see their first sudden deaths. 
and to deal with it. And there was one particularly horrendous one where basically the body had gone in an iron and came up in Peniva. Even at that stage, with three or four years' service, I'm looking at this young cop and I'm thinking, dear God, what are we doing to you? I think Tom's hit on something very important there. He's mentioned it once or twice about being on your own. And I think that might be key to it, is uh, my old man, I was on my own. I can't remember ever going to a sudden death on my own. And most of what we do as police officers is with a neighbour is with a, a companion. And immediately afterwards, we talk about it. Sometimes we put it on paper. A lot of the time we write about it. We have to visit it and analyse it to a degree to explain it to the next shift, to the sergeant, to the inspector, to parents, to whoever. We need to go over it and discuss it. And maybe we're hitting on something very, very important here for dealing with trauma and with these incidents on a day-to-day basis. Tom? I think Ian and you both hit on something very important. In times past, feeling the effects of these things was seen as a sign of weakness. And I think the one thing we've got to change, and hopefully it has changed, it's actually normal. It's what happens when it overflows. And I think what we should be doing, I would hope, is teaching coping mechanisms. I've been watching the outfall of the Lucy Letby trial, the nurse who has murdered all these tiny, tiny babies and tried to murder others. And I was watching the television coverage, not so much to hear about the details of the case, but actually to watch the effect it was having on both the investigating officers, the journalists, the other medical professionals. And you could just see that there was a ticking time bomb. And I just hope somebody has the wit to recognise that unless they take action now, some kind of preventative programme, then down the road a piece they're going to have terrible problems with the people who have been exposed to that over all these years and all these months of trial. I hope so, because otherwise I think there's going to be awful consequences which ripple down through the generations. I found out late in my service, late in my service I was involved in some historic murder investigations, and I remember going to the door of a family whose daughter had been murdered 35 years before. And I phoned up and said I was coming, and I introduced myself, and I came in, And I was there to talk about a historic case, and they were there to talk about something which had happened yesterday. Because in a very real sense, every day that passed since their beautiful daughter had been abducted and murdered was a repeat of the day before. And they never escaped from that. It was actually quite sobering. Really, that put in my mind exactly how we deal with the victims of crime and not only the victims, I mean, if, if somebody's dead, they're dead, but their families and their children rolling down the generations, the most awful hurt and damage caused. And I'll never forget walking in that door. And it was as if their daughter had gone the day before. That's how fresh in the memory it was. And they'd been carrying that for 35 years. And, and we're focusing on death here because we're, we're used to that being the most traumatic thing that we have to deal with. All the different varieties uh, that we've dealt with and, and police, police officers deal with on a daily basis. But what you're saying there, Tom, to me, uh, rings true of sexual uh, abuse cases. It, it permeates through generations and affects the, the futures of so many people down the years because attitudes are changed and uh, relationships are changed irrevocably as that goes on. So that trauma is transferred as well. It's passed on and on. And and something that, uh, that you said about filling in your pond, 
I think that's a feature of PTSD as well. And part of the treatment, Ian, is to try and uh, maybe recreate these things either in your imagination or physically to try and help you deal with them differently as time goes on. Because what happened to Tom was that pond immediately triggered the events from a a 20-year-old in his mind, and it had to be dealt with. You're right, Tom. One point that when you said there, it wasn't rational. Probably not, but it was the most natural thing out from my experience. I suddenly became so protective of my own kids. It was was completely irrational. I wanted to know where they were. I wanted to know what they were doing. This was two boys that had never given me a minute's trouble in their lives, you know. And suddenly, I'm this overbearing father. When we're talking about what you can do about it, one of the best things I, well, my opinion that Strathclyde brought in, you'll remember it, Simon, was the critical incident debriefs, where there was an enabler came along, and you got everybody together, and you sat down, and you talked about it. And the enabler's job was just to keep everybody on focus until they got it out. But what got me in that was how different people reacted to the same thing. If I may, I'll tell you about a brief incident that two of my cops. They went to a hanging. A young laddie, he split up from his girlfriend. They had a wee baby, but they met at a night out one night. He thought they were getting back together. At the end of the night, she said basically no, and he went home and hung himself. Funeral came along. There was a wake. She was at the funeral, disappeared from the funeral. Same two cops get sent. She'd gone home and hung herself. I walked into that room and uh, I took one look at these two cops and I'm saying to the sergeant, who frankly was completely oblivious, and I'm saying, get them out of here now. Get somebody else in to deal with this one. Oh, no, no, they're fine. No, get them out now. So I had a critical incident debrief, ultimately. You're not meant to be required to go to these things, but I did think the sergeant had to be there. The cops, one of them was trying to save the girl, the young laddie, when she was clearly well past that and he spoke about it openly he said he says her eyes were staring at me and you she wanted me to save her the older cop when we asked him how he felt he said i've never been so angry in my life he said how dare they leave a child of that age and it was just a different reaction the sergeant was the guy that actually started to break down in the middle of it all and he's been bottling these emotions up for decades and suddenly it's all come out and that's where we go wrong it is okay to be not okay people have to be given the opportunity to actually work through these things can i ask ian how long after the incident would that uh, debrief if you like have taken place the ideal was within 24 hours of the incident that one we did manage to get it exactly the next shift this is purely intuitive on my part But certainly when I was in the crime squad and future surveillance units thereafter, anti-terrorism and whatever, whenever there was a big job went down, and firearms were always involved, but obviously not always drawn or used, but they were always there or thereabouts, and there was always a high tension about these operations because the risks were high and the stakes were high, and they were usually high suspects anyway if it didn't always prove fruitful from our point of view. But afterwards, there was always a debrief. And I now believe that that wasn't for the operational purposes that I assumed it was for at the time. Because the debrief, if things had gone down, that was where we spoke about them. And I think this is something you two will understand straight away and a lot of people won't. It's where a lot of the humour came out. Because the way a lot of us dealt with it was by 
making jokes about each other, making jokes about the incident, uh, having a laugh about what might have happened or what so-and-so did, et cetera, et cetera. And in retrospect, and I knew at the time that that wasn't a cynical response, that was part of the coming back down from the high adrenaline flow and minimising the effects that we're talking about here that would kick in days and weeks and months and years afterwards. Yeah, I mean, I've been involved in a lot of these things and they're very, very useful. One of the key factors there is knowing that you're not alone, knowing that other people had the same emotions of fear and frustrations as you did. I think one of the big mistakes we used to make, and I remember a very young policeman had um, been involved in it. It was a sudden death, it was a burning, and it was a, it was a, a horrible thing. And his old sergeant said, oh, you've had a hard time, laddie. Listen, why don't you go home early? Now, that's the last thing that boy needed, was to go home and be in his own, or go home to a mother and father or a family that could not understand, not did not want to, just could not understand, because they had not had that shared experience. And I, I always remembered that, and I thought, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. You might try and divert them, but you would keep them close and you would talk to them. And I remember as a very young policeman, Ian, you talked about being Simon's a supervisor and I don't know what you deserved to, to get that job. But, um, but Actually, do you know something? If something had gone wrong, a kind word or a grip on the shoulder from an older respected cop or a sergeant sometimes did the world a good. It was beyond price. Even a look. Even a look. A yeah. nod. Just a yes. nod. Just a nod. Yes. A recognition. Yep. Yep. I, uh, Tom touched on one there. You said, Tom, about how sending somebody home to be in their own is the worst thing out. It's the one thing that we'll brush off on as well, and that is that going home bit. Uh, it's having someone at home who, well, and families have always been a big part of the police, an important part. I mean, Simon knows uh, my support mechanism at home. Uh, I think he's actually a little bit scared of her. But uh, <laughs> the, she's always just been there to listen and, and, and got it. You know, she never, ever said, OK, that's enough. She, she would just stand there and let, let me sound off, you know. And, that, and that's what's needed. It's that ability to be able to actually talk it out, to actually articulate what you're feeling. It can never be underestimated. I think you're very fortunate. I think a lot of young, single men don't have that support mechanism. And some people don't want to hear that or don't understand. I was going to ask you, Ian, with your experience, and obviously you've done a lot of work on this, what sort of programmes do you put in place as an organisation? Tell you what interests me is I'm on a board of a, a military charity. I'm not ex-military, but I was asked to to go on the board to, to chair it because it, they couldn't find anywhere else, basically. What's interesting there is that they get a lot of people coming to the charity for help with PTSD, but it's after a gap of about six or seven years. Soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, they leave and, and they go out into the big wide world and they do other things and it actually catches up with them quite some time later when they start to present with symptoms and then need to seek help. So there's this, there's often this gap, um, which which I don't, I don't understand. Do you have any thoughts on that, why that is? I think a big part of it is the whole macho thing. I can deal with this. We've all done it. Every single one of us has done it. 
I can handle this, you know, and I'll keep handling it because this is what I'm meant to be doing. There needs to be an education where people are actually learning that, you know, it's not normal. What they're doing for a living is not normal. It's the same in the military. It's not normal. The vast majority of people don't have to see the things that they do, don't have to deal with the things that they do. So they have to get over this sort of, I've got to deal with it because that's that's what I am. They have to get this mindset of, no, if I need help, I've got to seek it out. I found the critical incident debrief was a great idea. And I don't know if it's still going. My own impression was that it kind of died a death through lack of use. This wasn't some counsellor that was coming in. This was actual peers. This was cops, sergeants who were trained to enable the debrief. And they were exceptional. I don't know whether it's still on the go. Just now, I would hope and assume that it is. We had exactly the same system in Lothian and Borders, and we had a very, very good uh, professional heading it. But as I say, it was the peer counselling which was important and the timing of it. And it's interesting because some people were very resistant to it, said, oh, a load of crap this is, you know. But after they came through it, they came back and said, well, actually, that was very useful. You know, typical, there was a lot of typical cynicism, you know, typical cops, defence men, ah, I can deal with it. Macho, just as you say. But actually, once they got into it, I had a long conversation with the old professor of forensic pathology, Tony Vesutl, who worked at Lockerbie. And I spoke to him about it and I said, you know, I said, terrible set circumstance of me. And he said, you know, the thing that struck me, him about that, was not how many people suffered the after effects, but how few suffered the after effects, given the horror of what they had seen. And he said, because I was saying to him, well, you know, about 20%, the people that we'd had at Lockerbie were suffering badly from it. And he said, 20%? He said, that's incredible. He said, I wouldn't have been surprised there'd been 100%. I had a friend that was there, and some years afterwards, uh, he, I actually saw him on the day it happened, and he drove home, and he drove into his garage and shut the garage door and just stayed there in his car. And uh, he, no one will ever tell me that Lockerbie wasn't part of that. There wasn't at least, he was working in the mortuary at Lockerbie. And no one will ever tell me that that wasn't a big part of it. There was lots of repercussions in the years that followed. I had a colleague who was arrested for shoplifting. And it was a few screws that he had stolen. It was something worth about 20 pence from B&Q or something like that. But it was all directly linked back to... And it was only it was only when that happened that we realised that he was having problems at home, that he was in, his whole life was, was drip, dropping into a turmoil. And it was all linked back to Lockerbie. I've got a good theory about Lockerbie, Tom, that ties in with your being on your own. Most of us that were there were driving to and from every day in a police car, and there were three or four of us to a car. And that travelling too had time to put your armour on and get prepared and, and be in the right frame of mind. And vitally, the journey home of an hour and a half home, dropping each other off and probably going for a pint, often in amongst that as well, I think maybe explains the phenomena that you're your psychologist was surprised at. Apparently, the national average is between 8 and 12% of people suffer from PTSD, and that could be childhood trauma. That could be things that happen, violence between parents, the road accident that's happened in front of you in the street. Most of us have, deal with traumas all the time in our lives. That's what life is about. 
But interestingly, I think what you touched on there was that there are treatments and they're not theoretical anymore. It's like Ian says, they're well-documented, well-researched and very well-practiced across the world. And as usual, the forces are at the forefront of these things because of of what soldiers go through on the front lines. What about the way forward then? If that's not happening now in Police Scotland, Ian, and I've got my suspicions that that dropped by the, by the way, we, I think we've touched on a few critical points here that we would need to put in place to help cops uh, and other people, but specifically cops in this instance, deal with the horrors of the job. What do you think, Ian? There are a lot of very qualified, very good people out there. I talked about my counsellor. Okay, she was a clinical psychologist, but she could listen. That's the big thing, is that ability to listen. And everyone has to be trained in that. If a colleague's struggling, they need to learn to A, spot it, and B, listen, and help them through, get them pointed in the right direction. We all are well aware that the number of relationships that break down in the emergency services is way above the average. The amount of alcohol that's used in the emergency service is way above average. There's a reason for that. In one case, people can't cope. It might be a young cop going home to a young wife who just can't cope with it. Equally, going home in a mood that she can't cope with. Or, and of course, I'm not just talking, we should be talking both ways. A lot of exceptional Young female officers have very little support at home simply because uh, the man doesn't necessarily like the idea that he's got a strong woman coming home to him who's been dealing with this. You know, there's all, all these factors that need to be addressed, but I always come back to the same old adage, and that is, it's okay to be not okay. I think maybe something we've touched on here is that those first 24 hours, 12 hours, immediately after the trauma, is maybe the most important time. And maybe it's a training issue both for uh, supervisors and it should be incorporated into police training to prepare cops for what's coming because it's the one guaranteed thing that's going to happen in their careers repeatedly is they're going to be traumatised by events that they have absolutely no control over. They're going to be faced by armed men. They're going to be assaulted. They're going to witness the most horrific crimes. And in uniform, they're going to see those things up close at close quarters. And it's demanded of them that they get involved in it. So maybe at the time, it's crucial at the end of a shift and maybe into a training and maybe an MOT for cops every year. Tom, what do you think of that? After I left the police, I went to work for a while in, in uh, drug and alcohol policy, and uh, I was very impressed by the, the benefits of uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, which was a specific technique used in drug recovery and alcohol recovery. If that is done uh, properly and well, and I mean, it's, it has to be done properly and well, then that has enormous benefits. And I think there's a lot in that. Some people describe it as being a bit airy-fairy, and it's not, you know, it's... Uh, I was most impressed with the results of that. But I think on the bright side, just recently, our Retired Officers Association introduced a transition and well-being programme. And I think other retired officers branches throughout Scotland are doing the same. I don't think Lothian's borders are unique, which means that people who maybe six or seven years after leaving the service are having a difficult time have actually got somewhere to go to anonymously. Once they've left the shelter of the service itself, they've still got somewhere to go to. Now, typically of our service, and I suppose typically of wider than our service, it's a very slow start. 
But I was speaking to some of the people in the Retired Officers Association said, look, have faith, have confidence in this programme and keep it going. And eventually you'll get a trickle of people coming into it. You'll, you know, you'll get a lot more footfall in business because these things do not start with a, a bang. They start very, very gradually. I think that's a very, very positive initiative and one which the Retired Officer Association should be encouraged to do and congratulated on. I think it's, I think it's a great move. Ian, you're part of the International Retired Police Officers Association. Do you know how other countries are dealing with this or have we any lessons to be learned? Oh, we're certainly not unique in the problems. I know quite a few cops in the States. In common with the thousands of police forces that have, the thousands of ways to deal with these things. And uh, none of them are particularly effective. I mean, I, I think the thing we've got to be careful of here, though, is in some ways we've been a wee bit critical of the organisation as it were. My experience was only positive. And I'm aware now Police Scotland are certainly, you touched on the idea there of evaluations, annual evaluations or whatever. They're doing that. People are getting psychiatric evaluations every 12 months when it's recognised that they're in a very, very high stress role or they're dealing with something particularly nasty. So they're doing it. It's just... Is it going out to everyone? Because we can't forget that there's people in specialist roles who are dealing with horrendous stuff and they're getting these evaluations. But the guys who turn up is the uniform cop who turns up there first and walks straight in cold into the whole incident, whatever it is. I had two cops once. They were sent to a call of a fellow in a ledge and they ran round the side of the high flats for him to hit the ground in front of them. Now, how do you prepare somebody to deal with something like that? You know, it's it's just beyond horrendous. We have to remember that the guys that at the pointy end are the ones that are coming cold on all these things. And I suspect they're the ones that are probably getting the least support. Ian, just to round off, you said at the start that, uh, and I could see that you had to get warmed up to talk about your incident still, to talk about your unfortunate coming across the wee boy in the water. But... You said at the start that you were going to speak about it. That is part, that is probably the biggest part of any therapy is being able to talk about it uh, to colleagues, to, to anyone that will listen, really, and, and understand that other people go through similar things. So what I'd love this to do, our Crime Time Inc. Uh, feature here on that subject, is realise that we might have opened a wee door. And if there's anybody out there and wants to contribute, whether that would be in the expert field, uh, some of the issues that we spoke about, we personally don't have expertise, but we've picked up wee bits and pieces over the years from people who do. So that would be very welcome. And more importantly, people who maybe do have issues that they want to talk about or get pointed in the right direction, I'm sure that we'll be putting some uh, some information up here that people can lift the phone or get online and get some help to what they're dealing with. In the meantime... Unless you want to round up, Ian, is there anything you want to round up with to get off your chest? Like you're saying, Tom, the Retired Police Officer Association here, I was actually reading it today, it is a very positive because we can take training to deal with the people who are in service at present, but there's a lot of people who are no longer in service who are still struggling with what they dealt with. Tom, anything you want to round up with? I think it's very positive and uh, can I see Ian, I've enjoyed very much speaking to you. You've stirred a lot of thoughts and you've put your finger on a lot of issues which are are worthy of our further consideration and it's been a very interesting conversation. Thanks guys and just to finish thanks Ian for coming on and doing that 
And just to clarify the record, one of the most traumatic things is a young cop coming to Campbelltown, 140 miles from home, didn't know anyone. Uh, I was scared of Fiona. (laughs) (laughs) He knows full well if he leaves this whole thing on and my good lady hears that last comment, he's dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'll show I'll show you stress. Show you. <laughs> hey guys, thanks for a very stimulating conversation, um, and I'm sure it's something that we'll revisit many times in the years to come here on Crime Time Inc. Th- Ian, thanks very much for your time tonight. We'll see you again when you and I talk about uh, drug issues. Yeah. <laughs> thanks for having me on. No problem. And Tom, as always, well done for a Lothian boy. You've done good. And we'll speak soon. Good night. Good night. Good night. Next time on Crime Time Inc. I was on duty in the Serious Crime Squad that day, and we got a call to say there was a, a vulnerable missing girl in the borders. And we were told to get ourselves down there, myself and my team, first thing in the morning, the next morning. The local police were doing searches of the roadside verges, etc. But we were told to get ourselves down to Coldstream Police Station and establish a major incident room and a major incident admin set up the next morning. So very, very quickly, it was recognized that something had gone wrong here.